want to take a moment just to introduce to you our guest preacher for the day. Reverend Elizabeth Liz Evans is a provisional deacon in the Northern Illinois Conference of the United Methodist Church. She serves as pastor of student and justice ministries at First United Methodist Church of Arlington Heights. She also volunteers for UM Forward. Liz is a lifelong Methodist, and so listen closely. She grew up right here in Wichita, Kansas, so we get to welcome her home. She was baptized, confirmed, and raised at Calvary United Methodist Church right here in Wichita. She received her BA in English at Washburn University in Topeka. While there, she was involved in the United Methodist Campus Ministry where she first heard her call to pursue ordained ministry. She holds both an MDiv, a Master of Divinity, and an MTS, a Master of Theological Studies in Hebrew Bible from Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary, where she published her thesis, Nevertheless, They Persisted, Women's Solidarity as Resistance in the Hebrew Bible. Liz is passionate about the intersections of Christian education, ethical biblical interpretation, and social justice. In her free time, Liz enjoys playing guitar and piano, writing, playing soccer, casting spells on the game Harry Potter Wizards Unite, <laughs> and hiking with her wife, Megan, and two rambunctious dogs, Frankie and Ralphie. Would you join me in giving Liz a warm chum welcome? Good morning. As Pastor Jill said, my name is Elizabeth Evans. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I am a provisional deacon in the Northern Illinois Conference. It's really a joy to be here with all of you today. Thank you so much for having me. Special thanks to Pastor Jill for inviting me. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This past June marked 50 years since the Stonewall Uprising, which ignited what we call today the Pride Parade. Early in the morning on June 28, 1969, nine police officers entered a gay bar called the Stonewall Inn in Manhattan and began to raid it arresting 13 people for either dancing with someone of the same sex or wearing non-gender appropriate clothing. The riot that broke out as a result is what we call the Stonewall Uprising. And then one year later, on June 28, 1970, is when the first Pride Parade was held to commemorate the event. Back in 1969, same-sex sexual relations were illegal in 49 states, and they were punishable by a scale from fines to imprisonment. You could also be arrested for wearing non-gender appropriate clothing. That is, clothing that did not coincide with the gender you were assigned at birth. Which was left up largely to law enforcement's discretion. Gay bars like the Stonewall were a safe haven where lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer people could gather to express themselves freely, openly, and fairly safely. But even Stonewall was a bit different. It was a refuge for the outcasts of the outcasts. 
for LGBTQ people of color, for the most masculine lesbians and the most feminine gay men, for trans people and drag queens, and for LGBTQ homeless youth. In addition, it was the one bar left that still allowed same-sex dancing, which had recently been outlawed as public sexual indecency. These were likely some of the reasons that the Stonewall Inn had a target on its back. One of the leaders of the Stonewall Uprising was Marsha P. Johnson, a black trans woman and LGBTQ activist who co-founded Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, an advocacy group for young trans people. While those involved in the Stonewall Uprising are often criticized for their violent resistance, the uprising was a watershed moment for LGBTQ rights and liberation in the United States. Marsha P. Johnson and others involved in the uprising were pushing the bounds of who was considered worthy and who was considered unworthy of fair treatment, as well as the bounds of who was considered an out insider in American society and who was considered an outsider. In a 1992 interview, Marsha said, I was no one, nobody from Nowheresville, until I became a drag queen. The passage in Isaiah that was just read for us is about people who were no people becoming God's people. And it is about how the Sabbath redefines who God's people are. Isaiah 56 belongs to a portion of the book of Isaiah that was written to the Israelite community who was returning back to their homeland after decades of exile in the outer regions of Babylon. The exile had begun when Babylon invaded the kingdom of Judah, destroyed the Jerusalem temple, which was Israelites, Israel's primary house of worship, and then dispersed the Israelite people from their home, exiling many in the outer regions and holding others captive. The exile was a time when the Israelites experienced political oppression, economic and social marginalization, and geographical and religious displacement. They had been foreigners in a foreign land. But now the kingdom of Persia had invited Babylon and released a de- had invaded Babylon and released a decree that allowed the Israelites to return home. This was the news they had been waiting for, the news they had been crying out to God for for decades. Yet even in their celebrations, they grieved for what had been lost and wondered what could be recovered. They were in a period of rebuilding, quite literally rebuilding the temple of Jerusalem, their spiritual home, but also their community identity and morale as a people. They had been weakened, deprived of economic resources, and displaced from loved ones and divided from one another. Before exile, they had thought they knew who they were as a people. And now they had to ask themselves, is there any chance of returning to the people we were before we were exiled? And if not, then who are we going to be now? Isaiah 56 seeks to address those questions. Now, prior to the exile, God had made covenant with Israel that defined who exactly would be included in this community. One of the defining factors was that God's people were required to observe the Sabbath, a day every week where people were required to stop working, to rest, 
and to spend time worshiping God. The Sabbath is number four of the Ten Commandments, which came after God had delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, where they were existing merely as cogs in a machine of excessive production. In Egypt, the worth of the Israelites as human beings was inextricably tied to their work as slaves for the ends of Egypt's economy. Once they left Egypt, however, God revealed to them in the making of covenant with them that included the Sabbath that their worth was not contingent upon their ability to produce, that they were made for more than slavery, oppression, and exclusion. Through the Sabbath, God revealed to the Israelites that they belonged to God. In Egypt, the Israelites were no people. In the Exodus, the Israelites became God's people. The return from exile then marks another turning point for this community. In chapter 56, Isaiah reveals to this community that's rebuilding the intention that God has for them after their experience in exile. Here, God reiterates the demand to keep the Sabbath, a demand that reminds the Israelite people that their worth is not defined by the oppression and marginalization put upon them by society, but by God's claim on them as God's people. As a people who have experienced exile and are returning home, Israel is now a bit different, and the way that they live must reflect this transformation. Not only are the Israelites included in the community that God has claimed as God's own, but now the Israelites are implored to include groups of people that they have historically excluded, namely eunuchs and foreigners. Now, friends, this is a radical departure from a part of the covenant in Deuteronomy 23, which lists different groups of people who are not to be included in the Israelite community that's made covenant with God eunuchs who could no longer reproduce because their genitalia had been damaged or cut off, were among the list of folks who were excluded from the community. So were various groups of foreigners like the Ammonites and the Moabites. But in Isaiah, God appeals to the fact that, the is- that Israel has once again experienced what it means to be an outsider, to be deviant, to be a foreigner. So through the Sabbath, God claims those previously excluded as God's own people. With Sabbath now as the sole requirement for membership in God's holy community, God has revealed that God is a God of rest, that God is a God who loves the outsider, and that God is a God who resists systems of violence and oppression that seek to strip human beings and other creatures of their goodness and worth as creatures belonging to God. And it is through the Sabbath that God calls Israel to break this cycle of exclusivism, which is what led to Israel's slavery in Egypt and their exile in Babylon. We, too, live in a world that seeks to define our worth based on our, produ- our ability to produce something, whether that's children, resources, goods, or ideas. We introduce competition to children who are just starting in school and from there expect them to be the very best in hopes that our economy will be stimulated. 
These children who are told that their worth is based on what they contribute to society grow up to believe the exact same thing. And because of that, suffer under the pressure to be perfect and successful. Although no one in our culture is exempt from this harmful pressure to produce as much as we can in our lives in order to contribute to a society that will never claim or love us fully, there are some who, because of who they are, are asked by society to work extra hard to prove their worth. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, and asexual people, that is, LGBTQIA people, are among that group of people. When I asked some of my LGBTQIA friends if they experienced this pressure to be perfect in their lives in order to overcompensate for their queerness or their transness, one person shared that in her ministry job, she feels pressure to perform perfectly in every area of ministry to prove that her ministry is about more than just her sexuality. Another friend shared that they felt pressure to share perfect answers in their ordination paperwork and interviews, lest one wrong move shows that the board that queer and trans people really don't have what it takes to serve as pastors. Another friend shared about the pressure for her relationships with women to appear perfect to the outside world. All of these things put strain on our identities our relationships, our professional lives, and our sense of worth as LGBTQ people. In her article, An Equal Measure of Grace, queer Presbyterian pastor Leighton Williams writes, the equality that queer people deserve isn't only about inclusive ordination or marriage. We are asking for an equal measure of grace. We are not asking to be seen as perfect. We just want a world that knows our queerness isn't why we are imperfect. We are calling for a church that knows we need grace, not because we are queer, but because we are human. Now, it's worth noting, though, that each personal anecdote I've shared has come from a queer person who is also white and belongs to the middle class belonging to other groups that have historically been excluded or discriminated against in society only increases the pressure and potential dangers of failing to live up to that pressure. Take, for instance, an undocumented LGBTQ person for whom one wrong move could mean deportation. Consider a homeless LGBTQ youth whose mistake could mean not eating for days. Or think of a black trans woman, just like Marsha P. Johnson, for whom slipping up could cost her her life. We, as the church, are at a moment when we are faced with the very same questions the ancient Israelites were. Having seen what we've seen and been where we've been, can we be who we were before? And if not... Who are we going to be now? Isaiah tells us that the people of God, whom we now call the church, is called to be a place that challenges the pressures of society that dehumanize, harm, and violate the people that God has claimed as God's own. The church is called to be a place that resists the notion that a person or group of persons' worth is contingent upon their ability to produce, 
or to adhere to societal expectations and norms. The church is called to reach beyond its own borders to the people whom society has rejected, to show them that they are good because they belong to God. The church is called to constantly redefine its identity and its borders, taking a look at who God is calling us to open our table to. The church is called through the Sabbath to break the cycle of exclusion that has never served us well in our 2,000 years of being the church. The church is called to work with God toward the freedom of all people. Friends, I love a good rainbow. Rainbows are bright and fun. They bring us joy. And you better believe back in June in Chicago that I and the group from my church who marched in the Chicago Pride Parade were decked head to toe in rainbows. But pride is about much more than just rainbows. It is about more than floats and dancers and our Lord and Savior Lady Gaga and glitter Got to love a little bit of blasphemy on Sunday morning. (laughs) Coming out as LGBTQIA is about more than these things, too. To be LGBTQIA is about more than the spectacle of our holy and fabulous weirdness and more than the right to marry. It is about resisting the notion that people matter only insofar as society can use or accept them, and replacing it with the proclamation that people matter because they are people. So LGBTQIA people, hear the good news. You are enough and you are worthy, not in spite of your sexual orientation or gender identity, but because you belong to God. Straight and cisgender people, hear the good news. You are enough and you are worthy, not because of your sexual orientation or gender identity, but because you belong to God. Everyone, hear the good news. Once you were no people, and now you are God's people. Thanks be to God.